Welcome to our podcast, We're Not So Different. I'm Samira. And I'm Ali. We're two professionals having real conversations about our experiences at home, work, and out in the community. We tell our stories through the lens of our different backgrounds to just find out that we're not so different. In our podcast, we'll explore ways that we can improve engagement and bridge social gaps while trying to find the humor in it all. Check us out on social media at WNSDifferent or email us at WNSDifferent at gmail.com. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of We're Not So Different podcast. I'm Samira with my co-host, Ali. And today we have a special guest for you. His name is Herson Sanchez, and he is a very young PhD candidate, activist, and he also runs the Instagram page, Woke Wednesdays. Thanks for joining us for this episode. Um, Why don't you go ahead and let our listeners know a little bit about yourself and what you do? Hey, what's up, y'all? Thank you so much, first of all, to the two of you for having me on here on your uh, podcast. Very excited to be here. My name is Herson Sanchez. Um, As you said, I am a PhD candidate at Florida International University in Miami, Florida. And my research centers around activism and the different ways that it manifests in our world. And yes, I also am the founder and host of Woke Wednesdays. It's a social justice Instagram page that I started on January 25th, 2017, uh, in the wake of Donald Trump uh, being voted into office. So yes, that's what I've been doing. Um, And yeah, I guess that's a little bit about me. Was there something specific about Donald Trump's candidacy and presidency that made you decide, that triggered you and, and, or inspired you to decide to um, be an activist? I guess, yeah, I guess, I guess that's a loaded question. Um, but I think that certain moments, I guess, tend to politicize people in, in certain ways. And I had also just started my doctoral program. And I think the combination of that, and I think uh, wanting to be able to speak about things from, uh, I guess, in an insightful way, I guess through the academy and what I was learning, the combination of all that kind of led me to start Woke Wednesdays. Woke Wednesdays in many ways, I think was an accident. I just wanted to do one episode initially. I never planned for it to become a whole thing. And I guess friends started motivating me to, to start a page and little by little, it started growing and it's almost at 50,000 followers now, which is unbelievable i can't even fathom that so. that's awesome that is awesome so one thing I'm, I'm curious about is for our listeners can you can you tell us a little bit about what is woke wednesdays how you came up with a name as well as like you know i know you, you mentioned activism but is there something specific within activism you highlight on your instagram page yeah uh yeah sure so i remember uh a couple of weeks prior to starting Woke Wednesdays, uh, I had a homeboy, and he had this thing on Tuesdays. And I forgot what it was called, but uh, I remember he used to talk about race. And I was like, man, if he's doing that, like, why can't I do that? And so I wanted to do it on Wednesdays. And the reason I chose Wednesdays was because uh, I didn't have any classes that day. So <laughs> uh, Woke at the time was like a pretty like common word. A lot of people were using it. Uh, now, to me, the word is just kind of corny and overused at times. But at that particular time, I was like, yeah, that's cool. Uh, how about something like Woke Wednesdays? And I remember I was dating this girl at the time. And I was like, hey, what are your thoughts? She's like, oh, that's cool. That sounds cool. You know, she approved of it. 
So <laughs> it started. Um, her and I are no longer together, thank goodness. Um, <laughs> what we're going to say is it's still very much together, um, and we're trying to do some cool things with the show. And it's, it's interesting because a lot of people um, sometimes get angry and, and will write me you know, DMs like, you're not addressing this social identity or you're not addressing this topic. And I'm like, you know, and I understand why someone would be upset. And I guess what I try to think about is that something can be good and not everything at the same time. Luckily, there are other people, uh, you know, on, on social media platforms also addressing issues that pertain to human suffering. So, and I think that's great. And I think we can collaborate and I think we can learn from one another. So I think my page is is mostly, I think, around issues pertaining to race and racism, uh, gender, patriarchy, and sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I did more stuff on, like, capitalism and social class. But I guess those are the things that I gravitate uh, to more. And also the United States is a hyper-racial country. So I feel, and as a racialized being, um, I also think of myself in, in certain racial ways. So I think I feel more comfortable addressing race. So I think that's what the page is mostly geared to. But then the show, so the page is one thing. And then I also do the show. And the show addresses everything and anything. Um, any topic that comes to mind or any whatever makes me angry is usually what I focus on with the show. The show so the show is Woke Wednesdays. Um, initially, I, I used to do the show every single Wednesday at 9 p.m. And I did that for about two and a half years. I uh, never missed a Wednesday. I did over 100 episodes. Every single Wednesday at 9 p.m., I had different guests on the show. And, we, and through Instagram Live, we would have a talk show, basically. And even when I traveled to different states, I would even do the show there. So it was great, and I loved it. But then as I started doing my dissertation work, I had to stop doing it because it was just too much. So now recently, um, so initially we used to do it through Instagram Live, and we would record from my couch. But now, uh, luckily, I had a sponsor, and they actually really wanted to up the level of, of production with Woke Wednesdays. So we recently started recording in a professional television studio. Um, we did that on Saturday, actually, for the first time. We shot four episodes. It was a long day. A lot of stuff went into it. And that's going to start airing uh, in the next two to three weeks. Um, every Wednesday, we're going to try to drop an episode. So we're going to have our season one and season one is going to be comprised of eight episodes. So that's the plan for right now. And we have a couple other projects like in, in the works right now. I, I was going to say, I was looking, I saw those um, posts that you had put up recording and I hadn't seen any of those before. So that makes sense. So that congratulations. That's awesome Thank that you, uh, I appreciate it. that you got that. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your dissertation and what it brought you know, what drove you to, to go into that? Yeah. Um, so, is not an easy feat. Yeah. It, it's been, it's been a wild journey uh, to say the least. I'm also first generation. Um, so it's, it, it feels like you're constantly just trying to keep up, uh, you know, as you're going through these kind of journeys. Um, but I remember trying to pick a topic and at this point I had already been doing Woke Wednesdays for a while. And I remember I had had been reading so much um, and everything just kind of fascinated me. And I sat down with my professor and I was like, hey, you know, like, I don't really know what I should do for a topic. 
And we started talking and talking and talking. And finally, he's like, you're doing this thing with Woke Wednesdays and it's, you know, activism. He's like, why not do a dissertation on activism? And I was like, oh, wow. Like, I hadn't even thought about that. I, I didn't. Sometimes I guess I feel like I can't really intellectualize that which is personal to me. And in that mm. moment, I was like, maybe I can. Maybe I can, you know, study something that I, I love to do. So that's how that happened. And I remember that uh, activism means many things to, to, to many people. Um, a lot of people have critiqued the little black square that people posted. And I think that oftentimes we, so language is a very interesting thing as, as it, I guess, the role that it takes in our social lives. And I think that oftentimes we tend to misuse certain words. And I think activism is one of those words that is at times misused because at times we don't really understand what it means, like it's, it's etymology, the root of the word, which is fine. Um, but I think sometimes when we misuse words, it can also foreclose certain ways of being, certain ways of acting, and certain ways of pushing politics forward for, for the good of, I think, all people. So the more I got into the study of activism, the more, I guess, it opened up trains of thought for me. Yeah, so I guess when it comes to activism, I've, I've luckily now I've, I've written some stuff on it. You know, I've read a lot about it, um, so I know a little bit more. I actually just got my, I just submitted my dissertation draft, my first draft a couple of weeks ago, and I just got my review back today. Um, so there's a lot of shit I got to fix on it, but ultimately I think it'll make me a better scholar. Uh, but yeah, I think activism can mean many things, and we can talk about that too if you'd like. Um, but yeah, that's that's how I kind of came up with my topic. Can you go into the when you were talking about the meaning of activism and the root of it? Can you uh, educate, elaborate for uh, Ali and myself and our listeners? So traditionally, activism has been thought of uh, like protests or boycotting or or sit-ins. I'm from Greensboro, North Carolina, so one of the uh, one of the things that Greensboro is known for is the the sit-ins that took place against just racism and just segregation and Jim Crow. And that's great. We need we need all types of activisms. That's really kind of like my argument in my dissertation that we need to be creative with our activisms. Cuz it's not just that the etymology or the root of the word active means to move, uh to move something or a person in a particular way. And then when you put ism at the end of it, it's the practice of. So when you put these these things together, it's the practice of trying to move people in particular ways. Mm-hmm. And what I see with my with what I saw um, with my research is that maybe emotions are one of the things that propel us to move in in in, in numerous ways. When something makes you angry, you you act in a type of way. When something makes you happy, you act in a type of way. When something makes you sad, you act in a type of way. So emotions are, in a, in a way, activators for us as social beings. So when I see something like the black box on Instagram, I see that as something that could potentially activate somebody because we never know how far the ripples go. We don't know at what point someone something changes somebody. Like it took me a long time like to like reading certain things to get me to think in a particular way, to get me to act in a particular way. So I guess what I'm arguing for is that we should have, that numerous things activate us, 
including our emotions. Um, and I, and that's where I kind of go into it with my, with my dissertation and my research. Um, so yeah, so I think not all activators are necessarily good. Some can be evil. Some can, some can be used for, for nefarious purposes, but I think paying attention to the numerous ways in which we activate people is important. And what I saw with my research is that for some reason, there's something about children who grow up in, in marginalized communities and they understand themselves as such, as someone who is growing up in a marginalized community, these children end up kind of taking a role in the way we tend to activate others. So, so many people that you talk to, like the reason you all started this podcast, I am assuming, is that there are particular experiences that you had in your life that led you, activated you, and moved you to try to do something for the betterment of of people. And this is clearly a social justice podcast. So this is a way that you all enter the political realm of political activism. So those emotions and those experiences activated y'all and moved y'all to do this, is what I'm assuming. In a sense, you were activated by other things, other peoples, by memories, by experiences. And I guess that's what I'm trying to address in my dissertation. What, like, what emotions provoke people to become activated? Yeah, that is is a chapter in my dissertation. But I'm also looking at um, the experiences that lead people to act in particular ways. Um, I call it moments of activation. So what is it about someone who was pulled over by the police as a child and brutalized by the police? Mm -hmm. Like that moment there activates somebody to act in a particular way. And for my research participants, one of them, it it led them to to start reading about, you know, systems of oppression. It, It led them to be a political organizer in Miami. So those experiences led him to do that. Those experiences also make him mad and angry. And outrage is perhaps, a, I want to say a good thing when it comes to activism, prolonged outrage. Because when, when someone is appeased, when someone is made to feel better about a particular situation, we tend to kind of slow down. We tend to kind of acquiesce or just say, okay, this was fixed. A solution was, was, was provided ostensibly. But when someone is outraged, when there is anger involved, we tend to to push, want to push more. So, which is an interesting argument when it comes to reparations. The argument of reparations is a certain community is is asking for something due to the historical and present just abuse and just a constant oppression. But what I'm scared of, in which I'm completely for, but what I'm scared of is that if a reparations was actually given, that this would then appease certain communities because if we give a type of and reparations oftentimes thought in like monetary terms so if there was a monetary payout and we call that reparations this does not mean that systemic racism goes away it does not mean that police brutality goes away it does not mean that any of these things go away it just means that there's an economic payout i'm not against that but but what i'm trying to think through and again i'm not really committed to my thoughts like i change my ideas every day when i hear something when i read something so this is what I'm thinking about right now, is that if we were to pay out a type of reparations, it would appease, it would be a, a, a purported, I guess, solution. And then maybe this would kind of almost kill the movement. Mm-hmm. So it uh, could end up 
more like hush money versus actual reparations. Like, hey, yeah, like reparations can be can mean many things, but the point is that systemic racism still won't go away, even with that. And I'm afraid that, especially politicians, will be like, "We already gave you your money. Stop complaining," kind of thing. Right, and their supporters would fall in line with that as well. Yeah, it's and, and that can that can fuck up a movement. So I think there's like a, a tension there. I, I'm all for communities being funded and people being given. Like I'm all for that, but I'm just I'm just I guess I'm I'm trying to think of some of the consequences that might inevitably come with that, um, which I think is important for us to think about and think through. Um, it's it's a it's a controversial and a complicated argument, but I think it's an important one. So I. I would have to agree with with you on that because and I, if you've heard any other ep, ep, or joined us on our IG live ever, we've had a lot of conversations about Reparation Island uh, by, <laughs> run by Ali, but that's a whole other conversation. But um, I would agree that it's important to solve the problems, the root cause of the problems versus just addressing the symptoms and of those problems. But to your point, you know, giving someone reparations without actually fixing the solution isn't going to solve anything in the long run. There needs to be a, there needs to be a plan to be able to do both, to make people whole, but also fix the system so that we don't repeat history, we don't do the same things, and we don't perpetuate uh, these negative stereotypes and keep these systems that are holding people back. Yeah, and that's part of the what adds to the complexity of this that it's numerous systems working like together yeah um you know it's interesting i had i had a really weird thing happen to me uh i uh i had i had to give like a speech at this uh at a nonprofit organization and the day of i was trying to print the speech it was like four in the morning i woke up extra early um i was trying to print it out and my printer ran out of ink so i'm like oh shit i gotta go get something for the printer so Luckily, it was like a Walmart that's like open 24 hours. So I went, got the ink, came back home, put the, the cartridges in the printer, and the shit wouldn't work. I was like, what the fuck? I got the right ink. Why is this shit not printing? And I opened it up, and to my demise, what I didn't realize was that there was a, there's like this little small yellow piece of paper on the cartridge that apparently you have to take off. Yeah. It took for the shit to work. And I was like amazed by this because I was like, the printer in and of itself is a type of system. There are multiple working parts, moving parts that make this machine work. But sometimes it's the little shit, that little piece of paper that can fuck up the entire thing. And I was thinking about this in relation to systemic forms of oppression and about how we're often trying, oftentimes trying to find a solution to systemic forms of suffering. But I think sometimes we, we take for granted the little, the small things, like the, the small wrenches that could actually fuck up the whole system. And I think what we're seeing now, even with like that little Instagram, uh, the little black box, a lot of people critiqued it. And I, and I understand their critiques and I, and you know, rightfully so, I get it. But I think that sometimes we don't realize how something so small can also be so good for a movement. Um, 
because to someone who's never really engaged with systemic racism or thought about it, for them to post something like that, it's like, okay, it's a starting point for somebody. There's somebody else that might not be. And we also don't know what that person's follower might do when they see a black box like that. Maybe they're like, huh, what is this black box? And that leads them to do some research and be like, oh, shit, this is happening. There are certain things that sometimes we don't see it as fruitful, but they actually might be, especially in the long run. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I will throw in a comment about reparations as being one of the recipients uh, <laughs> if there were reparations in the room. But I, I'll, I'll put this in there as, as food for thought. So I understand that I understand the, the angle in which you're coming from, because you're right. If you give someone a check and you continue, you know, just like in a domestic violence relationship, right? You pay somebody off, but you continue to beat them. It doesn't change the system. But I think there are some some key things that that we want to we want to recognize. Is one obviously you agree with, you know, two hundred and fifty years of free labor is has a value, mm-hmm. right? Cotton, tobacco, sugar cane, establishing the wealth of an entire country um, that's worth trillions upon trillions of dollars today has a value. But one thing that I like to look back on from a historical perspective are some of the leaders that existed back in that time. When we think about Marcus Garvey, we think about Malcolm X, and even we think about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the late, in the late, in the twilight of his time, um, a lot of the focus and the emphasis, especially from Marcus Garvey, was about having and doing those things that just empowered you on an economic standpoint. So to your, to your point, and Samir and I have had this conversation. If you just, if, you know, it's kind of like the Dave, Ch- Dave Chappelle episode. You give a bunch of folks reparations right now, be people driving around with uh, with a truck full of Newports, right? But if you empower people from an economic standpoint and they spin within their own communities and they create their own systems within, within their own communities, specifically those around groceries, uh, finances like banking um, and, and kind of your everyday services, you then internalize that money, you turn it over in your own community multiple times. So I, I think to your point, the conversation about reparations is very layered from both the socio the socioeconomic piece of it, the financial aspect of it. And then you're right, you know, what what good does it do if the system still is at hand? But I think there are economic ways when you have that amount of power. And you even have that amount of power in the African American community without reparations, right? Just when we talk about turning over dollars in your own community. So that's that's a very interesting thing. And I think when you're done with your paper, I'd love to read uh, the piece on on uh, on reparations, but um, I do agree when we start to think about, you know, how exactly do you go about tearing down a system and what benefit that what benefit how does it benefit you if everyone is not necessarily at the place where they should be when you start handing out checks, right? If one person is taking a check and going and buying a Ferrari and walking off, and the other person is is starting a business, those are that's going to be two different outcomes, right? One person is just going to get beat down by the police in the Ferrari. And the other person is going to have established a way, established a way of creating wealth for their economy and their community over and over again. So, and helping giving people other options. Yeah. So that we can- you know, also the idea of someone buying a Ferrari is like very, is, it's a very interesting example because it, I think it also reveals what we also think about particular people and particular social economic classes because there's been a lot of like research about, um, who or what, what people do with their money. Um, so oftentimes people talk about financial literacy and I find that almost insulting, especially because it's, it's very much targeted to poor people. 
And I'm like, name a group of people more resilient than poor people. You know, like, I know my mom, like she, this, this woman, single mother and constantly clean houses. And somehow she, this lady can stretch a dollar. I don't know how the hell she does it. Yeah, making yeah. something out of nothing. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's wild. Um, so it's, most poor people actually work multiple jobs, um, like to, to stay afloat, to survive. So it is interesting, like, uh, the, like you said, you said it perfectly. Um, the, the conversation of reparations is ex- extremely layered, extremely layered. Ex- again, it's these, we're talking about numerous systems at play. Like it's, it's yeah, it almost seems like unimaginable. Yeah. Um, I, I want to touch on that because I think you, you bring up a good point. It's there's this hustler mentality, survival mentality that is had where you know, you do what you have to do to survive. You know, you clean, you cook, you sew, you babysit, you do whatever you can to make to make ends meet. And I think where where we could do better with financial literacy is what do you do when when you actually do have a better income and how are you using that money? Like how are you uh, investing in yourselves? And I think the challenge is, is that a lot of people, once they start making money, then they want to go for a lot of the um, tangible items, you know, the shoes, the shirts, the brand things, um, instead of being educated in the point of like, well, sure, you can get that. And, you know, you could also invest in this or put your money here and have it grow for you. So in like six months, you have more money or, you know, continue to save. So I do, I do agree that people dismiss that, the part you spoke to about the hustling and the, and the script, you know, doing, working so hard to make ends meet. And, you know, one of the challenges I've seen is that, you know, people are having a hard time of even getting to a point where they can talk about financial literacy because they're still just surviving. Yeah. And, and that's the thing, like, again, this idea that people buy tangible things to make them happy. Number one, like we all do that type of stuff. Like, this is not just like a poor person thing. Like we all engage in, in those types of activities, you know, regardless of, of your social class, maybe those that are extremely elite don't, but I, I think even them, they still do. Yeah, even they do. And yeah. Rich people are nothing but poor people with money. Like, let's be clear. The human, <laughs> human behavior is the, is the same regardless, right? So uh, there's another thing that is systemic. We, we said that, you said that sometimes people who, once they start making some money, well, what we do know is that that rarely, very rarely happens, actually. Like, yeah. so a living, having a living wage in the United States is, is, is like radical. Like even talking about that. I live in Miami and I'm pretty sure minimum wage is like, I think eight bucks or something, something terrible. I don't even know what it is now. Mm-hmm. Horrible. Absolutely horrible. And bringing up, saying that people should get paid $15 an hour as a minimum is, it's unfathomable. So even, so poor people, again, oftentimes work more than one job to survive. So even the idea that they can start making some money is already like false for the most part. And this is part of what, when we talk about capitalism, what capitalism is a very alluring and seductive idea. It is the, part of it is the idea that people can actually make money and actually be rich one day. That is patently false. We, and we absolutely know this. We know that the top 1% of people in America own more, more than 41% of the wealth. When it comes to black communities or black folks, the top 1% of black folks own more than 70% of the wealth of all black people. 
so why is this? Like, why does this exist? How does this happen? And I think having a framework of capitalism is very helpful because it allows us to see that oftentimes people actually will stay in the same economic position that they were born into, which is why this is another form of systemic oppression. Um, there's this almost just patently false belief that if you go to school, you will make more money. If you go to college, you will make more money. This is, this is actually false. What ends up happening is that you have a whole class of people who go to college and get a degree. Now, jobs have a bigger pool to choose from. When you have a bigger pool to choose from, you don't have to pay them as much. So there is this belief in what we've, and there's actually a great scholar um, where he argues that maybe the way out of poverty isn't going to college. It's actually giving people a living wage, whatever that, whatever that is. But yeah, oh, John Marsh, that's his name, John Marsh. So this is what he's arguing. He's arguing that instead of going to college, if you want people to get out of poverty, is to pay them a living wage and let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, again, this seems so unimaginable because it's it's a theory that we're yet to put to the test. So I think when we talk about people like making more money and they go buy the Ferraris or the shoes or the tangible things, number one, we all engage in that type of behavior. And number two, I think, I don't, I, I would even question, how do we even know that that is what happens? Because maybe we've seen a couple people do it. Um, a couple of people isn't most people. So I, I even question that, like, how do we even come to know that that is a reality for most people? Yeah. So I, I, I do want to kind of rebound on the capital uh, capitalism thing, but, you know, I do want to ask you about, you know, when you, when we talk about activism, right, we, you know, yes, we, we had the George Floyd incident and that's popular, but one thing that has been a running theme um, in relation to our Latino brothers and sisters specifically has been this idea that immigration is bad for the country, the idea that um, anyone from south of the border is bad for the country, the idea that even if you're born here, you still should go back and whatnot. So I wanted I wanted to touch on your activism related, specifically that community. And then also I wanted to actually get some clarification. Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, like what should what should people be using or does it matter? All right. So the first part of the question was, how do I engage in activism in relation to Latin people? Yeah, let, let's let's switch it up. Let's go with with Hispanic, Latino, you know, let's define it. First. Yeah, Latinx, like, you know, you hear those terms thrown around. What do those mean? And, and what what you know, do people often have a preference? And then let's go into the activism around it. Yeah. So what, I, what I've learned is that. uh these words can mean many things for many different people. So, and it's funny because I see a lot of like Instagram videos that come up or YouTube videos where people occasionally define, you know, or define these words according, you know, to whatever they're reading, to whatever they're, you know, studying or whatever their experience is. So I want to preface that. Uh, so even whatever I say, Someone might be like, oh, that, that's not what that word means to me. Sometimes there is no one definition. Again, like words are, are words. They're created by people. So they're constantly changing. So Hispanic, I think we, we spoke about this when we were on the phone the other day, is a relatively new word. So the U.S. Census in the 1930s, they had the word Mexican in there. 
Then mm-hmm. it was taken out, and then it wasn't until the 1980s that the word Hispanic was introduced, 70s and 80s, in the U.S. Census. This was by the Office of uh, Budget and Management, I believe, uh, the United States federal government. So they're the ones who create the census. So this word comes into into kind of the American lexicon a couple of years, like so a couple of decades ago. So it usually tends to mean someone who, you know, speaks Spanish or is of Spanish origin or or someone who comes from a Spanish-speaking country. So that those are some definitions for that word. Some other people might take exception to it, but that's what I think. And then Latino, Latina is usually someone who comes from a Latin American country. So the funny thing is that people don't become Hispanic or Latino or Latina until they are in the United States. It is redundant to say that you're Latino or Latina outside of the United States. Like if sure. you're Nicaragua or Guatemala, People don't walk around saying, I'm Latino, I'm Hispanic. That's absurd. Which is interesting because that would mean that Hispanic, Latino, or Latina is actually an American or a Western production. Yep. They are invented by the West. Um, there's a phenomenal book called Orientalism by the great um, Edward Said. He's a Palestinian scholar, a beautiful writer. And he talks about how the Orient or how, well, he, by that he meant the Middle East was actually a creation of the West. So really, I recommend that people read it. But so it's interesting when we think about Latin people or Hispanic people and about how we are in ourselves, a type of production, how even Blackness is a type of, we could argue, a type of American production. So controversial arguments, and I'm always down to, to have those, um, but it's something to think about. What does that even mean? So recently, a lot of scholars... Um, so there's this thing called critical race theory, but then there's also Latin Latin critical race theory, and what these scholars have argued is that they actually take they take exception to the word Hispanic, because Hispanic is to almost and was what they argue that it extols or lauds or praises the colonizer, the colonizer being Spain. So the reason mm-hmm. most of us speak Spanish is because we were colonized by the Spanish. So some people reject that word, some people hate it. I know people who fucking hate that word. Um, like, don't call me fucking Hispanic. Like, and people get upset about this. It's a real thing. So that's Hispanic. So and then Latino, Latina. But the thing with Latino or Latina is that it tends to imply a type of, you know, gender identification. Mm-hmm. So recently, uh, people have been using the word Latinx. And that can mean many things as well. Typically, it means someone who is from, who has Latin American origins, who and this is supposed to be more gender inclusive. And what I like about it, one of my homeboys put me onto this and he's like, part of what Latinx does is that it disrupts our kind of normative understandings of, of Latino, Latina, and Hispanic. So when you use a term like Latinx, it automatically disrupts what people tend to use. And then we we're able to have a conversation about why we use that word and how it is gender inclusive. So I think that's a pretty cool take on it. I think when people refer to me, I actually don't give a fuck like how, what people, what word people use for me. Um, I think we're oftentimes labeled many things in our lives, uh, whether we know it or not. So yeah. this is a label to me that is like I, I just, I just, I just don't care enough. Like I, when <laughs> I growing up in the South, I, I would be called Mexican, and right. I get be, becoming upset. Yeah. I'm Mexican. I'm not Mexican. Now, I don't give a shit. I think I embrace it at times. And I would say that sometimes I am politically Mexican. Mm 
So I can be yeah. in the South and someone refers to me as Mexican, and that might give me an opportunity to address particular issues. And if I'm racialized as Mexican, that means that there are certain political consequences that might come with that. And again, I think I can use that as an educational moment. So yeah, so these terms can mean many things to many people. Some people get it, some people don't. One of the interesting things is what kind of a person gets upset with this type of word, Hispanic especially? It's usually someone who's had some type of academic training. It's someone who's studied something about Latin or Hispanic or whatever. Other people don't don't take exception to it. And sometimes it's because they haven't studied this stuff. Yeah. Sometimes it almost comes off as this kind of boutique multiculturalism kind of stance. And so I think that's important too, because I'm like, okay, you're taking exception to this word and I get it and I respect it. But then don't get mad at somebody else because they want to, this is the only word they have in their language available to them. This is the term they use. This is the term they grew up using. Not everyone gets to go on and have a doctorate. In fact, most people don't. So not everyone studies Latin American history. Most people don't. Right. So I think sometimes when people like get upset with other people because they're not using the quote unquote correct terminology, I'm like, hey, dude, like chill because it almost <laughs> comes off as like in a type of elitism. Um, yeah, that's so. you in the Persian community. Like people don't want to be called Iranian, so they call themselves Persian mm. for whatever reason. I'm, but I'm with you. I'm like, whatever. It's Iran. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't care. Like, I just don't. And then next week it'll be another word that we use. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about the activism around Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, and all of the above for you. What does that look like, and and how does that manifest? And how can people show up as allies? Yeah. So it, it's it's wild, man. Like, I guess there. When we say activism, I guess it can mean again. Activism can mean many things. And I think for me in particular, I think sometimes my very own existence is a type of activism. So I, I think both of you, your very existence in a particular space might already be disruptive. So in, in your particular jobs, sometimes your very existence, because the way you look, the way you speak, the things you care about is already disruptive in a particular space. I don't know if you've ever had the experience where it's like, oh, there they go again, talking about, you know, race, gender, whatever. Your very existence in this world is already a disruption to that space. Right. Um, and to that place. There's one scholar who, her name is Doreen Massey. She has a book called For Space. And one thing that she argues is that there's a difference between space and place. Space, part of what comprises the idea of space for her is that it comes to exist through interactions. So for example, we could be in the same room and the room could be the place, but then you're in one corner talking with, you know, Ali and just, just the two of you and that, and that's your own space because you're creating it through your interactions with each other, despite being in the same place where I could be in the other corner, having my own space. So I think that is important. So your very politics, your very disposition to life, your very physicality, the way you look is already disrupted to a space. And I think that's a type of activism. So for me, I think in the way I think about things, the way I talk about things, I could be at the gym, I could be at the bar, I could be wherever. But if I hear someone call somebody illegal, I'm already going 
most likely I would probably say something. Usually I wear a lot of political t-shirts. So, so one of the shirts I have, it says, uh, no human is illegal on stolen land. So wearing that type of shirt to a place is already disruptive. Wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt when you're not black is already disruptive to a particular space. So we talk right. about allyship or, you know, I, I usually don't use those words, uh, but like I, I get it. I think that's a type of way, again, to kind of enter, to be a, an activist, to activate other people, to do certain things. So I think when it comes to Latin people, um, I approach it like that. That's one of the ways I approach it. So being in a room like on campus where I'm the only Latin person and I'm, I have to address certain things, I think that's a way to be an activist. Um, when I'm working, when I'm at another place, like it's, it's, I think it's a constant work. One of my homegirls just finished a dissertation on something called uh, cultural taxation on all the ways that individuals who are marginalized are constantly taxed, like through everything they do. Like they ask you to be the diversity person. They ask you to talk about race. Oh shit, I got a question about, you know, Iran. Oh yep, I know exactly who you could talk to. Like all these things that constantly tax us as individuals. So I think when it comes to activism, I, I do that. I also try to use social media to politically organize. So when there were gonna be protests outside the ice camps in South Florida, sharing that information, disseminating that information, trying to be someone who was mobilizing people. So I, I think those are all ways that we do things. Um, and I think also protecting people is, is an important thing. So right, my mom has lupus and I live in the hotspot of COVID-19. So part of the way I protect my mom is by not going to see her. Um, and my yeah. mom is a working class Latina woman. I think that's important too, protecting the most vulnerable of our populations. So I think that's another form of activism. So I, I think there are so many ways to be an activist. No one has a monopoly on activism. And I think that's a good thing, even though sometimes yeah. we try to pretend like we do. So I think those are all kind of, so at least some of the ways that I can just think of for right now that I try to be uh, an activist. Yeah, let's expound on that a little bit, especially from um, the Latin perspective. You know, it is, uh, you know, Hispanic Heritage Month. But when we think about the history of the country, we think about, you know, we're in California, which used to be Mexico. We think about the Spanish coming over, the conquistadors. Um, we think about the history of the Incas, the Mayans, the Aztecas, the Tainos, and all the people that were destroyed over time through colonization. You know, if you if you had, if there's something that comes to mind for you around not just the contribution, but just understanding the the right of existence, if you will. And that's what I think. That's just my own kind of take on it. The right for, of existence of the native and indigenous person, the right of existence for those who are the 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 uh, much, much disenfranchised children of the Spanish um, and the natives, you know, when you think about those sorts of things from a historical standpoint, and you think about fast forwarding to now where, you know, people who stole the land are, are telling you to go back, um, are telling your people to go back or have a have a healthy ignorance of history. What, what does that bring about for you from an emotional perspective? And also, yeah. what is your for people because you mentioned speaking up when someone in the store says someone is illegal but that's part of that ignorance right so yeah. what is your message for those folks yeah. and how do you feel about that 
I like how you worded that, that healthy ignorance. I like that. I'm gonna have to use that. Um, I like that. Um, you know, it's you know, it's wild. You know, I, and I'm 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 gonna I'm this is like my way into answering your question. At least again, let's say I wear wear a Black Lives Matter shirt or something like that. Or I I've often heard from people, oh, Hearst is just trying to be black. That's what I've heard because most of my friends are black. You know, I, I hang out predominantly black spaces and places. So I was here, oh, Hearst is trying to be black. And I'm like, this is fascinating. I'm like, because I support and I feel comfortable and safe around a particular group of people, this means I'm trying to be something as if me needing to be something is the reason for me having to care. I'm like, mm-hmm. and I, I and I hate that that logic. And I think as I'm, uh, as I'm trying to answer your question, I think all people should be outraged by human suffering yeah so to me when i see someone being uh ridiculed or bullied because they're gay because they're trans i'm not a gay man i'm not a trans man i don't know what that experience is like but what i do know is that this person is suffering and no one should need to suffer period um so i can stand in solidarity with that um i don't know what it's like to be a woman but i've if something is going on there you know, I don't need to be a woman to be able to be like, yo, this is fucked up. So I, I think I think it's important. I think when we talk about allyship and all that type of stuff, I'm like, I think we should all be outraged when shit is going on, when things are happening. Um, most recently, we saw that in ice camps in Georgia, uh, immigrant women or those who are deemed as immigrants are, uh, they're going through forced hysterectomies. So they're literally, yeah. you know, their, their opportunity to have a child is being stripped from them. So we see these things and we should be completely outraged. We should all be outraged. You know, it shouldn't have to take someone being Latino, Latina, or whatever word we're using to describe ourselves to, to be angry and upset about this. So I, I think that's, I think that's an important disclaimer for me. Um, how does it make me feel? It makes me feel horrible. Um, sometimes I can't sleep at night. Sometimes, you know, I wake up just angry, just disgusted at the world. Um, it makes me feel terrible. Uh, so the constant abuse that people are um, subjected to. And, and yeah, so as far as the contributions, you know, it's really weird the way we justify immigration in this country. Um, oftentimes, one of the main arguments is that because so many Latin people um, contribute to the economy. This is why we should allow them to be here. So they work so hard, they pick our fruits and our vegetables, they uh, pay taxes, so they should be able to live here. And I'm like, this justi- this economic justification is disgusting um, because this is what we're trying to use to say that people should be able to live like in peace and harmony. Um, because of how hard they work. Uh, so to me, I just kind of find it just uh, appalling and insulting. Uh, so I, yeah, so yeah, to answer your question, I'm disgusted by all this shit. It's terrible. Um, when you learn that Mexican people were lynched in this country, uh, Mexican women were lynched because they didn't want to be raped. So they got lynched. When we see that in Puerto Rico, the US government was experimenting on those people um, during World War II. Uh, there's a great book that just came out. Um, I think it's called uh, How to Hide an, How to Hide an Empire. 
and where they go into where uh, the author talks about this about what happened in Puerto Rico. So, or we talk about um, Wetback Act, I believe, I think it was 1954. Um, the Bracero's program was a program where the United States went into Mexico to to get basically um, people to, to do their labor here. And then once they were done with them, they literally just deported them back. Uh, and that was the Wetback Act. So feel free, please fact check me. I think it's 1954. So you think about all these things. My family's from Nicaragua. So you look at 1980s, the role of the CIA going into Nicaragua, like, and this is a form of U.S. imperialism, and funding um, the Contras, and these drugs were disseminated in California. So, like, <laughs> and so you can't make this shit up. Like, you can't. So, the more, uh, James Baldwin said, to be black and conscious is to constantly live in a, in a state of rage. Rage, absolutely. Uh, and one of my homeboys told me once to be native and conscious is to live in constant mourning. Yeah. yeah. So, and they're uh, an indigenous person from Colombia, South America. So, yeah, I, I think the more you learn about how horrible this country has been and continues to be, especially to the least of these, those who are the most vulnerable, it should outrage all of us. Um, it, and yeah, and I wish it. And I guess I it would. I wish it would outrage more people, but I guess with that comes a type of education. So, I guess that's why I'm I'm in education to try to teach about these things. Yeah, yes, that that activism you spoke about is evoking that response, right? Um, and that's something that that you know we share uh, very common between our cultures is is the history of of destruction and to your point you know to say that you know those of 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 origin south of south of the border or indigenous or 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 latina latino is you know your folks are the reason why they survived the native american were the reason why they survived right and that's and that's not enough you know so when you when you talk about the contribution piece of it i definitely understand where you're coming from but we know that the greatest contribution was was education the greatest contribution was teaching them how to survive during the winter uh the greatest uh contribution was teaching them how to farm teaching them how to sustain themselves right putting them in a position of of understanding the land and the weather patterns and the animals so on and so forth when they first got here giving them basic survival and that's not enough so that that you know that's that's the contribution right it's not it's not you know who picks grapes it's you know, the, these folks are the reason that you even existed here, that you made yeah. it through one winter. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and it's crazy. And, they, and, they, and they're and they called us savages. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I was like, man, dude, like that's... And yesterday was uh, Indigenous People's Day. So, yep. you know, I'm, I'm glad people were talking about this, but I, I, this this needs to be a prolonged conversation. Um, and I think, that's, I think that's a good example about the appeasement I was trying to get at earlier about how you give people a group of people a day or a month or whatever it is. And it almost seems like, like a, like a cafeteria diversity, like scheme, like, here you go. Here's your day. Here's a month. Right. Uh, right. I'm, I'm black every day. You're Nicaraguan every day. Samira's Iranian every day. But we don't get a day. <laughs> but y'all don't get a day. We get the shortest month. We get the shortest month. <laughs> you mean, yeah. a day might be a, a, a an interestingly good thing, maybe. I'd rather not have a month 
and I'd rather have like serious reform, serious like policies. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. So like in Black History Month is an interesting one because it was started by a black man. It used to be a week, and the reason it was started in February is because it celebrated the birthday of Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. It yeah. wasn't until I think the 1970s where it actually became a month around the same time as Hispanic Heritage Month. Um, and the reason Hispanic Heritage Month is usually around this time is because it celebrates the independence of uh, Latin American countries. Um, so it's interesting. Like I sometimes, you know, I wish that, that it wouldn't exist. And I'm trying to be careful with what I'm saying, because then it almost seems like a type of appeasement. So I think let us have the month, but also let us solve the problems. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd be happy with releasing people from ice camps. Yeah. Talking about indigenous people. Many of the people being held in these camps are indigenous people who don't even speak Spanish. Um, they speak their indigenous languages. So actually, these camps were actually looking for translators. But the reason people just kind of put them all together with Latin people is because a lot of us tend to look similar um, yeah. because of our indigenous, obviously, history. Yeah, a lot of indigenous people are being held in these camps and they're being abused and it's I don't have to explain it to y'all. It's 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 horrific. I, I I appreciate you giving that information, and that's something that that you know has come out recently, especially about you know how they're treating women. You know, I'd love to have you back, and and get more into what's happening down there in Florida, specifically with the camp, specifically with how women are being treated. So we we've covered a lot in this episode. So, person, I want to personally thank you for coming on. Um, you're you're as my teacher used to tell me. You're a gentleman and a scholar um, and appreciate the information. Kid, I, I want you real quickly to go through how people can reach you, all the things you have going on, all your contact information and all of that stuff so people know how to stay tied to you, informed and activated. Yeah, uh, well, thank you all so much. It's it's actually my honor just to, to be on here and chop it up with y'all. I was speaking to my professor earlier today and in, in doing this work, and again, trying to be conscious and try to read about this stuff is exhausting at times. It's debilitating. It's it can sometimes deactivate you. Like I know sometimes I'm just fucking sad, and I don't even know why. Uh, I don't know if this happens to y'all. Um, yeah. So being in solidarity and being able just to kind of chop it up, even though I don't know what y'all look like, I don't. Uh, you know, we've never hung out. You know, it. I think that it's a beautiful thing when you can have solidarity with people. And this, and I, and look, we connected through social media, and I think that's dope. So, so thank y'all first and foremost, uh, and then second of all, uh, I, if, if y'all feel free to, I guess, to follow on Instagram, Woke Wednesdays, we're revamping our YouTube page. We've got a website coming up soon. Uh, we're doing shows uh, in a professional television studio, which I'm really excited about. We did four episodes this past Saturday. The first episode will be airing in two weeks. It's about uh, it's. I'm not sure what I'm going to call it yet, but we talked about uh, what democracy means um, in these current times. Uh, our second episode was uh, violence against women. Third episode was teachers uh, in the midst of COVID. And the last episode was what does Black Lives Matter mean in an age of cancel culture? And for every episode, we had like two to three guests on the show. And it was it was a great conversation, hopefully very educational. And those will be posted on our YouTube page. Um, and the YouTube page is Woke Wednesdays, one word. So, yeah, feel free to follow, subscribe. And, yeah, however I can be of service, please let me know. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of We're Not So Different Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, share, and review on your favorite podcast platform. You can also find us on social media by looking up the handle at WNS Different or We're Not So Different on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. You can also join us live on Instagram or check out our previous live episodes on IGTV by following us at WNS Different. If you have comments, questions, or thoughts, feel free to email us at WNSDifferent at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.